The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome, one and all, to Night Fright. Get the coffee going, get the tea going, a beverage of your choice going. Preferably, it's so hot tonight, a beverage of your choice, I think, would be wise. Settle in, get in your most comfy chair, stick your feet up, and relax. And we got a great guest for you. This is a bit of an impromptu thing. So I want to introduce right away Kingstown Ted from a great horror, etc. podcast that he does with Anthony D.P. Mann. Ted, how you doing? Welcome to the show. I'm doing well, Brent. Can you hear me okay? I can. I can see Terrific. you too. What's the subject tonight? Subject tonight is Horror Etc. Podcast. What's happening? Because this is for your fans. This yeah, is my for fans. Your, your legions of fans. I don't know if there's a lot of crossover here. We don't use the word fans. That's a dirty word, Brent. Uh, oh. We use the word listeners. Oh, listeners. <laughs> Uh, nevertheless, yes, you're right. Uh, so I'm a co-host of a podcast that's currently on hiatus, has been since February, but is due to return with a bang. With a bang. That yeah, sounds tantalizing. With any luck at all. Brent, we should, uh, we should take this opportunity to fill some time and just chat about a few things. What's on your mind? Well, uh, have you seen any good horror films? In nope. The past? Okay. What have you and seen? That's the that- problem, see? If you're going to open up the floor on the horror genre today, that is an issue because it's kind of a start and stop. It's a conversation freezer because I do not enjoy the current output of modern horror. It's just not, it's just not engaging to me. At all. When did it stop becoming engaging for you? Um, I think I could trace that back to Insidious. Yeah, that might be the, the inflection point. Uh, right about there is when I realized that uh, you know it's always been that uh, blockbuster, or I should say megaplex uh, cinema horror presentations, are they are formulaic and molded in a certain way, and they, I have those expectations, but the scales have tipped, and at this point now, I feel as though the, uh, the kind of empty, uh, redundant, jump-scare constructed sequences do not uh, elevate the subpar written material. I mean, the, uh, the plot lines of these stories are just so rote, that there's nothing to draw you in. Characterizations are so thin and predictable. Um, and it's becoming more and more cartoonish in the presentation of antagonists. So that's a lot of sweeping generalizations to basically say, you know what, uh, for now, I'm just not digging what's coming out. That was the last Although that said, that said, Guillermo del Toro is going to offer us Crimson Peak here shortly, and I am anticipating 
in that one. It looks like an excellent, another period piece, supernatural presentation from Guillermo del Toro, who isn't afraid to cross some boundary lines. And that's what I think I need. I need something a little more challenging. I, as with you, I have seen the, um, the, the, uh, the trailers, and it looks absolutely fantastic. Now, just as a little tidbit, uh, part of it was shot right here in Kingston, where we both broadcast out of. And I'm excited to see Kingston in the, mil- in the mix with the, with the film. But it looks like a, a great horror movie film in terms of the old classic um, gothic-style haunted house. Now, you didn't enjoy Woman in Black 1 or 2? Woman in Black 1 was, um, you know, that was uh, redeemable because of the source material was strong. Susan's Hill original, um, her written story is pretty solid, and therefore an adaptation of that should hold true. The 1989, see, my co-host Anthony would know for sure the production house, but I don't know if it's a BBC or not. It came out of England. In 1989, they adapted Woman in Black, and it was, uh, you know, threadbare and low budget, uh, but they captured the essence of the story and the atmosphere very well. All you really need is some appropriately lit fog bank and you have basically captured. If you're doing things properly and if you've got your pieces are assembling in the right way and you've got a believable performer at the center of things, you don't need much to draw an audience in, right? And so Woman in Black is the kind of material that supports that. Now, when Daniel Radcliffe came along, we had to endure a few of those quote-unquote jump scares which irritate me. But by and large, I felt as though they did capture that gothic atmospheric sense. And I was willing to forgive kind of like the final 20-minute act uh, action set piece. Uh, uh, that said, Woman in Black 2 is just a, a tremendous disappointment because it, is the, it exemplifies this oft-quoted jump scare problem uh, where it really didn't have a lot in terms of uh, new ideas and it didn't build upon the concept of the woman in black enough for me. It just basically took what we've established, repeated it, and uh, added in three to four minute long uh, crescendo set piece moments that lead us to jump scares. And that, to me, that's empty and soulless. Uh, too often, uh, horror movies that have a running time of 90 minutes uh, can really offer you 60 minutes of plot line. And I don't need my stories to be heavily plot-driven necessarily, but if the atmosphere is hollow, uh, then I seek something. And if there's no story there either, really, what is it offering at all? Did you happen to catch the uh, uh, the reincarnation of Poltergeist? I did. I liked it. You liked it? Yeah. Not as much as the first one. I'll qualify that. Well, okay. Because the first one was fresh. Uh, but I, I did like it. Um I like the characters, the interaction with the characters. Well, Sam Rockwell, you've dropped him, him into just about anything, and you've got a, a minimum 15% improvement. Uh, I find him a very engaging actor, and when you're dealing with material such as a poltergeist that has been recycled in various forms. Now, sure, this is, this is a remake, but that said, uh, poltergeist is kind of like the, uh, the foundation of hundreds of haunted house stories that... Uh, sort of try to capture that classic Amblin Entertainment sense, right? So we've endured this story many, many, many times. Um, the repeat, to me, the remake, um, it had some interesting new ideas, but unfortunately I felt as though it just was uh, running through kind of a, in a paint-by-numbers format. It was running... It's an interesting thing to say. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know that it added a great deal, and not that I argue that it needs to either, uh, but if it's not offering much new in terms of concepts and ideas and the general structure of things is the same, I just I always question why then? Why did we remake Poltergeist? I know the brand has value, so you purchase the brand name, you've got an inherent marketing vehicle, I get all that, uh, but when it comes down to it, when you're weighing the argument of artistic merit versus uh, uh, profit, you know, and cost-benefit analyses, to me it tips over to, well, this is just a studio that calculated the numbers and decided if they remade this brand, uh, they would realize a profitable return. Not necessarily that they're investing a lot of new ideas and concepts into it. Has there been anything at all, either on Netflix or any of the other um, social media outlets, I guess it wouldn't be social media, but any of the internet outlets that has attracted you to uh, horror in any sense, even television. Well, sure. There's there's all there's always something that's uh, like I said the the broad sweeping generalizations. Of course, that's all they are. You can't you can't exclude in entirety a genre that I happen to love. I mean, I'm wearing my uh, zom- <laughs> my compilation Zombies Through the Ages T-shirt. Uh, because you know why? I watched the uh, Walking Dead Season 6 Comic-Con trailer today. I uh, was trying to hold off, but I couldn't. I bit the bullet and I watched it, and I'm all zombied up again. So you see, it's funny. You become fatigued with the thing. <laughs> and at the core, as a fan, uh, you can only be without too, so long, right? So uh, the griping that I do, uh, you know, pinch of salt, right? Because I'll always be there to turn out for something. You know what's interesting, Brent? And it's a bit off topic, and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but uh, um, since you asked the question, what has reinvigorated me in, in some way? Uh, just recently completed a, <laughs> I won't say rewatch, because I had never bothered with it. It was Buffy. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Heard of it? Of course. Yeah. Uh, I love Buffy. I mean, I love looking at her, and I love her. And I have a little funny story to tell you later about my nephew, who was seven, and I can tell you now he was he was sitting on the uh, in the basement watching Buffy like this, and he had a big smile on his face. And here's Uncle Brent sitting behind him, the adult, and saying, "Oh, you really like that show? What is it about you about it? You like it? Is it because it's scary?" And he turned around. And he said, "No, because she has big coconuts." Seven years old. So that's my Buffy story. Well, her stud double does. I don't know about Sarah Michelle Gellar, <laughs> but we're not going to talk about that kind of objectification. Uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer is something I dismissed. It came out in, uh, it, well, it ran 87 through 93, I think was right. the time span. Now, that's uh, when you think about it, right? That's yeah. a long time ago now. That's yeah, We're talking, uh, yeah, a quarter century ago. Now, when it was first on, I was a young man, and it seemed like a lot of silliness. I dismissed it out of hand, and uh, for a long time, never really understood its creator, Joss Whedon. It took me some time to acclimate to him and what he was doing specifically here. Um, but I'll tell you something. If you actually invest yourself into something like this, a classic series that maybe you had overlooked, which was what I had done, and I sat down, Brent, and for a season and a half, I struggled with it, and I was almost a sh- confirmed in my initial thoughts that this is silliness, and I can't imagine this sort of thing ran on for seven years. But then it takes a turn. And it has its low lows in terms of a series, but when it reaches the highs, it's almost unparalleled in, um, in television that I've seen. We've got a bit of a renaissance 
currently? Well, since 99, essentially the Sopranos ushered in the new age of television, and we have great things happening, and we just finished a, a classic series for the time, all time, Breaking Bad. And so you can't say that this is one of the best shows ever now, uh, but when you take it into context of its time and place, and you realize that this show opened doors for, you know, it opened the doors for things that were to come and formats that were to follow. And the subtleties in writing, the performances and characterizations that remain consistent, uh, the development of relationships over years, uh, the building of threats, they dropped the ball tons of times. But as a horror fan, uh, I came to appreciate that this kind of quirky television show that has a whole set of rules you have to learn. You have to learn the rule book to the show, but once you do, um, it really, you know, it took me back. It took me back at how impressive some of the material in this was. So, yeah, modern horror in the Cineplex, it's not really exciting me, Brent, but it's interesting because uh, the well of this genre is so deep and vast that there's really no threat of ever reaching bottom, you know, and and exhausting what's good meaning there's always something more around the bend so yeah i still get excited about things something a discovery like that to me is, is wow i'm glad i finally did that well i'm curious because i'm presuming you watch buffy with your daughter in the same sense that you watch walking dead with your daughter your daughter's a young teen um and how did she, because she's growing up in the modern era, you know, she's growing up with Walking Dead. When she was looking at Buffy, was she as um, immersed in it as she and focused in it as she was with Walking Dead? Or did she oh, think it was old yeah. and stale? It's, you know, again, it is, this is a, a ripe subject that you could uh, just sit down and chat about. And But the fact of it is, it's pretty much the perfect presentation of a... Uh, character for, uh, you know, an adolescent, specifically a uh, a younger teenager or tween girl, who is inundated in today's world with uh, sexualized imagery and concepts, mm-hmm. and you give them this alternative presentation of a character that is uh, self-assured and strong, confident, um, makes mistakes, uh, takes wrong turns, uh, grows and learns from those things. And, you know, stands on her own, and not just because of these superpowers that she's imbued with. Uh, she's, she's just a strong character that you really want to see succeed. And the circle of people, the characters, the sub-characters that grow around the core of the show uh, also reiterate that message. The finale of the series, actually, the last, last uh, 144th episode... Um, it is essentially a declaration of um, girl power and, and feminism. Mm-hmm. And uh, Joss Whedon is renowned for this. He's uh, very, he always had this kind of strong pro-feminism um, uh, stance. And so he's to be applauded for that. Uh, what he created here was something I just didn't really, I wasn't even aware of it, to be honest. Uh, I was closed-minded and I've since put my hand up and admitted that um so yeah i think that it is very engaging still these many years later i think that it still works okay um are there any other older shows that you're going to introduce her to oh well i mean we'll see where things go brent i don't know what's uh, i haven't planned that far ahead were you an x-files fan by the way yeah absolutely i watched it through season five i want to say okay uh whenever uh, fear the future or fight the future right whenever that came out 
as soon as I uh, heard the entire exposition of the story outlined in the backseat of a limousine uh, by a man in uh, the echelons of power, then I basically had the story uh, resolved for me, and the mythology was busted, and I didn't care to return to the show. Okay. It's a good movie, though. Are you anticipating the the new series, the new six uh, mini mini series, six part mini series? I'll uh, check it out out of yeah. I think I will probably turn to it out of curiosity, if nothing else. Yeah, I'm looking forward. I'm not to sure. It, so. I'm not sure uh, how things will proceed. Are we picking up from the final movie, or are we sort of retconning back to the end of the series? I don't really know much about how it's going to turn out. It's interesting what's happening right now in, in the adaptations going to television, right? You've got uh, Twin Peaks, of all things. I, I still haven't wrapped my head around that, that it, it's returning. New Twin Peaks with David Lynch writing and directing. It just, it's almost, I can't, I couldn't have imagined this happening. Uh, the X-Files is back on television. Yeah. Uh, there is a, this kind of like new, uh, uh, this new movement, really, of, trying to take these brands, as we've referred to them as, and give them a new medium. Uh, we couldn't get that new Evil Dead movie launched. We couldn't do the reboot. And for whatever reason, development hell, Stars says, we'll pick up the rights and we'll put it on as a miniseries. How about that? How does that grab you? And so you watch the trailer that's now out for Ash vs. Evil Dead, and it's a laugh riot, and I'm thinking... I can't believe this is happening, yes, but it's happening. It's hilarious. Yeah. So I really, I, I kind of like these. And I'm uh, hooked. Just, I, I'm so anxious for this thing to come out because I watched the trailer too, and I was just like glued to it for the two or three minutes that it ran. And I thought, man, if the show is anything like this, this is going to be a knockout show. It's going to be fabulous. Well, Bruce Campbell, he's kind of done the shtick already in My Name is Bruce, you know, uh, playing essentially an alternative version of himself, a uh, heightened reality version of Bruce Campbell, but playing up the fact that he's, you know, he's aged, he's older now, and, uh, you know, I see some of those jokes have translated to the new show, but you know what? Hey, I'm willing to uh, listen to Bruce Campbell as Ash tell those jokes again. <laughs> Let's jump into Terminator, or maybe we shouldn't. How did you yeah, feel about Terminator? I don't have much to say about Terminator. Okay, so well, it's an atrocious disaster. I mean, oh. th this is what we've come to in the modern times. I guess uh, I don't know who to point my finger at if it's Roland Emmerich or Michael Bay or who it is, uh, but whoever decided to just uh, purposefully brain drain all of the blockbusters so that we can level the field as far and wide as possible to the lowest common denominator. That's where we are. This was an atrocious example of underwritten, uh, half-thought-out plot. It, it, it's just, it's a nightmare to try to follow this, let alone the franchise as a whole. You can forget that. This film itself is contradictory to its own timeline and what it's talking about. There's entire gaps in logic and plot holes that are un, with no intention of being addressed. The most common... Uh, discussion point on Terminator Genesis that I see online now <laughs> refers to events that take place in 1973. And without getting into details, the question is how and why? And the honest truth of it is, I don't think that the writers of this story worked that out. Don't give me the, oh, it's there's future sequels planned. That's the Lindelof defense, and I'm not interested in that. You can't drop something 
as relevant as this plot point into your story and then leave it cold and not explain. It is the foundation point of the entire thing, the whole story you've built. And the foundation is on sand because there's no explanation for what happened. And, and, and I don't believe that it's something that they've just purposefully omitted so that they can return to it a la Amazing Spider-Man 2. You know, let's just clip this part out here and we'll drop that in the next movie, leaving question marks. In the... I don't buy it at all. I don't think that the writers worked it out. It was a deal where, you know what? Terminator's a brand name. If we're going to be consistent with the theme, it's a brand. This one, bought at auction, of all things. This is the definition of a product. So they buy the rights at auction, they hammer out this half-cocked plan, and they somehow get James Cameron to endorse it. I still don't understand that. But nevertheless, they roll it out there. Questions were probably raised in the process. Uh, how did this happen in 1973? Somebody should have asked. And the writers, pro my guess is that's a big shoulder shrug. Uh, We'll work it out. If this makes enough money, we can we can figure that out. If it doesn't, ah, well. I liked Arnold Schwarzenegger's performance, and I'm going to catch hell for this probably from you. But I like the one-liners, and I like the fact that he kind of took on a human uh, father relationship with the young Sarah Connor. I thought yeah. that was very funny. Uh, the rest All of the movie now is the single teardrop rolling down the cheek. The rest of the movie, I feel like you, it was pretty much. You know, just a bunch of explosions. Now, let's go to another movie that had a lot of explosions that both you and I enjoyed equally, and that was Mad Max, the remake. Mm -hmm. I thought that, We're just I, all over the place. There's no real theme to this, is there? <laughs> well, yeah, it's yeah, it's okay. Uh, it's Night Fright, baby. Okay, open mic. Open, open Night, night Fright. Um, how, do you feel, how did you feel it, it stood up as opposed to the original with uh, What's-His-Face in it? Listen, Mad Max Fury Road was probably the most fun I've had at the movie theater in years. Why? Years. And I sound like a grumpy old man when I talk about these complaints I have. You know, that uh, modern horror genre offerings are cheap, stale, and annoying. Yeah. Uh, modern blockbuster movies, the tentpole films, are, are, are mindless and, um, and disrespectful of the audience. And then you turn to a Mad Max, which is just action and spectacle. However, when you are not trying to uh, present yourself as a convoluted and complex narrative, then I have no expectations to hold you to. All I'm here for is to see what kind of uh, ingenuity you have come up with to create new action sequences to reinvigorate something I've seen a bajillion times, a car chase. In 1982, to universal uh, acclaim, I mean, you've got a cult following for Road Warrior, and many consider that 25-minute long chase sequence to be one of the finest ever captured on film. How do you return to this? Hmm. Somehow, Brent, um, they did, did and it, it does utilize a lot of modern technology in that there is CGI throughout. Mm -hmm. um, but interestingly, it's not all CGI, and there's a lot of practical effects, and there are spikes welded on cars, and dune buggies flip through the air and sand gets kicked up in clouds and it's just an engaging action romp and i tell you something uh charlie's theron it as you know the common statement is that it's really it should be furiosa road because it's her movie uh max is a secondary character in this agreed movie. agreed but uh, and again another strong female character 
which I think is really yeah, terrific. Um, and she's got a lot of these. Well, throughout the uh, nuances of this world are left unexplained. Uh, but in this case, unexplained not in that they don't have an answer for things, but really that it's not relevant to what we're doing here. Why does Furiosa have uh, um, a replacement arm? Why does she have that claw? What happened? Who knows? Who cares? All I really know for sure is that she packs about 25 hidden weapons in the cab of her truck, and that makes her wicked cool, amongst other things. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, you can't get hung up on the minor details that really aren't important because you just can't. The movie is rolling forward at such a pace that you don't ever have time to stop and worry about inconsequential details like that. Uh, difference between plot hole and sort of a backdrop, a backdrop, um, a tapestry of a, of a world that's being built. You know, it, it's, um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I really can't say enough good things about it. I went to the theater twice to see it, which is a real, real rarity. Me too. Did, did, did you see it in 3D or 2D both times? I uh, saw it in each format. I preferred 2D. Really? As I, I preferred the 3D in this particular one, and I'm not a big fan of 3D, as you know. Yeah, but I, it, I, it's really um, <laughs> just keep the gripe train rolling. Uh, yeah, the, it's really infuriating. The, the three dollar three D surcharge is almost inescapable now. Yeah, yep. I know it is, and uh, that's proving to be a little bit of a a challenge, I think, for the cinemas to try and keep something fresh. Why they why a person is is going to leave the comfort of their own home with a giant screen TV and go to a cinema. And uh, well, so they've got to find different hooks. Yeah. However, you look at the uh, the return numbers that we're seeing this summer, and uh, I don't fear for the <laughs> for the industry. I think they're going to do okay. Uh, favorite movie so far this summer? Mad Max. Mad Max Five Mile. Yeah, it's not even close. Okay. Mm -hmm. Did you see the new Avengers movies? Movie? Sure. Yeah. You didn't. That's my favorite. Well, I mean. The Avengers are fun, and it's another great Marvel Universe installment, sure. Um, it's a while back now, so I mean, to go to details of the story is difficult. It's one of those, uh, as with all Marvel comic book movies, this is sort of the same kind of symptom I suffer from. But two or three days out, plot details have begun to fade, and I've lost the memorable moments still maybe stick out. But don't they tend to blend? These movies tend to blend uh, over time. And the format of having a superhero character, and whether or not it's an origin story, that's neither here nor there, but they will eventually face a foe that is essentially their diametric opposite. So, equally powered, but evil. And they'll clash. And we've seen it a million times. Iron Man versus another guy in an Iron Man suit. And they'll fight. <laughs> <laughs> you sounds like you're becoming very jaded by the whole film industry to a certain degree. In a, in certain ways, yes, that's true. But again, too I don't formulaic. want to be too uh, sorry. Too formulaic, formulaic. Too, too well, many, it's just a formulaic story templates, tells. sausage factory. Yeah, that's ultimately that is the issue, the underlying problem. Um, but. You know, I, I've reached a point now where, I mean, for the longest time, I could abide uh, a, fair, a fairly skewed ratio of 
shut your brain off at the door movies versus genuinely uh, well thought out and considered and constructed pieces of film. Uh, for me, I was perfectly comfortable with uh, you know, bringing on action films and mindless entertainment. Uh, but I found that it, it's just the ratio became so far askew that I really couldn't, I couldn't keep pace anymore. And so now I'm not rushing out for every big box office release that's coming down the pipe. Uh, I'm trying to be a little more selective for my own sanity. <laughs> <laughs> well, it all starts with a story. And I'm going to back up a bit and talk about your co-host, Anthony Mann. And uh, he's he's redoing a Christmas classic called A Christmas Carol, folks. But he's got Colin Baker in it of uh, Doctor Who fame. And he's doing a wonderful job with that. But I want to back up even more with Anthony and his original work, which is Ghost Keepers. What's your opinion of Anthony's Ghost Keepers? I'm going to put you on the line right now. Oh, I don't uh, I don't make those kind of comments. Brent, do you know how, uh, how so, so, you know, Oh, I, I, come on here. I've been complaining for half an hour. <laughs> and, and, you, and then you say, well, okay, well, what about Anthony's movies? Well, okay, I, he's my friend and they're good movies. I'm not going to go further than that. Uh, but you're, you're right. He's a guy that's out there and he's doing this. Um, I think it's fair to say he does what he does. He makes independent movies on a shoestring. Is that a fair term? Oh, I, I don't even know if it would even be adequate to call it a shoestring on no string it's not much at all and uh you know often when you work under such restrictions and limited resources um you know uh you can actually elevate you know necessity is the mother of invention they say and you can elevate above that sort of thing and really you factor in the considerations and you look at it and you say well that's very impressive what you did with nothing um alternatively you could have nothing and end up with nothing because there's a lack of inspiration behind whatever it is you're undertaking, whether it's a YouTube homemade video that you post, whether it's a independent film that you're trying to put together with limited means, whatever the medium is, whatever the project is, um, when there's care and there's effort, it elevates. So, you know, what I see when, when Anthony does his work is, you know, he is passionate about what he does and it shows so you know that's one of those elements that too often is missing in a lot of what we're getting out of uh you know the major production houses good you know, point big budget and by big budget i mean i'm not talking about 100 million i'm talking about millions one million is a big budget movie in my in my perspective um and when you lack any kind of uh heart I'm not sure how to phrase it. I'm not sure what the right term is. It's an intangible word. Maybe. Uh, Maybe. Going through the motions. It's simple, sometimes it's a simple matter of the script writing is uh, clever enough. And this is where I'll just circle back to Joss Whedon, who I now look at as one of the preemptive script writers. Because whether or not the story is ludicrous and the character Characters, the concepts are, it doesn't matter. Like I said, there's a rule book to Buffy. But once you understand the rule book, you step back and you say, wow, what he's constructing within this world is really amazing. And um, so you identify people that uh, have abilities. And I'm more drawn to that kind of thing now. And so although I had a bit of a diatribe, I, I did raise the name Guillermo del Toro. He's another example where 
you know, he obviously big budget filmmaker now. Um, but he came from very, uh, I would say, Sparse modest beginnings. roots. Yeah. And he is a guy that has so often impressed me, uh, just with the the conceptual ideas that he's putting out there. And sometimes they don't always work perfectly. Um, don't be afraid of the dark was a remake he did that's sort of lambasted for its CGI. And yeah, there is bad. It it is bad, <laughs> but. He can capture gothic imagery, and uh, he can use shadows like a few modern directors can do. And uh, it's those kind of intangible qualities that you understand and appreciate as you're watching something, right? So you're bringing this down to uh, to somebody who we mutually know, Anthony DP Man. And uh, you know what I liked, what I like to see in what he or anybody who's working in the medium um, does is you get the sense that whoever's making this cares about it. And it's unfortunately rare, but... It really is unfortunately rare. Now, what's happening with the podcast tour, etc.? Are you going to be resurrecting that in some form? Oh, we'll get back together. And your fans be... are listening right now, because I'm going to be posting this uh, in a few days on uh, the Horror Etc. podcast. Um, this is just a... You said just give you a Skype call. I didn't realize you were recording this. You're supposed to... Um, I'm joking. The, the podcast is on hiatus simply because of personal schedules and nothing more. Um, Anthony's a very busy guy. Very busy. And it's funny because from the time we started doing a, a podcast yeah. recording, it's a, it was a seven-year roadmap. And over the course of that seven years, his, his schedule just increased in its complexity. And that's you know a testament to the fact that he's being kept busy. That's all positive i have uh you know i have my own uh scheduling matters and it's gotten hectic as well and that's really it so it's just a matter of getting uh, a window of time to sit down but we've got a few ideas already hashed out and i'm looking forward to it it's been a while yeah it's going to be great i know when we were talking earlier this evening we were sitting at starbucks together folks all three of us uh the magic was there between the two of them and that's no uh smoke up the old uh you know where i'm going there um there was magic there, so I consider it my magic. my quest. Magic, like the fans, all the fans are out there waiting to, to experience the magic. Brent, you know, and they are because there's listen, a word out there. I listen to a hyperbole. Bunch of, yeah, but I listen to a bunch of podcasts and they stink. Yours is the only one I tune into week after week. Well, it's uh, off the air at the moment, so you're gonna have to find your entertainment elsewhere. You are being broad and sweeping in your statements now. There's Lots of good stuff out there. Lots of good podcasters. They don't need us old fogies around. Old fogies, my God. <laughs> my God. Um, let's talk about another film genre that uh, I'm kind of interested in, and that is um, what Anthony's doing right now, the musical. How do you feel about musicals that uh, are kind of incorporating a little bit of horror? What do I think about musicals? <laughs> you want the long answer or the short answer? I don't, I don't know. Uh, Give me the long I'm answer. Not a fan. Well, okay. Uh, so since I've already laid down some uh, foundational backdrop, I feel comfortable enough going back to the subject of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> you know, to be fair, this conversation—I don't know where it's going. It's bouncing around, but this will be my uh, this will be my static line. Buffy the Vampire Slayer is a ridiculous show and uh, should have never been really re uh, 
considered in any kind of dramatic way or anything like that. Turns out all that's false. And in the sixth season of the show, and this is deep in the run of any television show, once you've exceeded three seasons, typically the ideas begin to decline. The writing staff disperses. The talent pool has moved on. And in this case, this is a series that launched a second series. And when Joss Whedon sort of devoted and split his time between two different series on two different television uh, networks as well. I'm talking about Angel, of course. Uh, you get that. You get a lot of the writing staff splinters and, and different things. All that to say, sixth season of the show, episode seven, is uh, renowned as considered being one of the best of the series, if not, not the best. It's called Once More of Feeling, and it is, in fact, an entirely musical episode. All the dialogue, well, most of the dialogue is performed in a, in a, in a sung manner. And there's dance routines, numbers. There's, uh, it's hard to describe. It is a musical for 45 minutes. And it's composed entirely. Joss Whedon wrote this musical uh, from top, top to bottom. And all of the regular characters did their own recordings. And, uh, I mean, I sat flabbergasted at what they had accomplished having seen it and as a not a fan of musicals at all in general <laughs> a lot of show tunes to me I, I have difficulty with them because they are constructed to be exactly what they are and if you're not a fan of that it's difficult really you know to uh to adapt to it that said though i'm watching this thing and there is an entire it's a pure show tune number and it's a two-person um, sort of uh, back and forth repartee and they're dancing and they're singing and they're doing their thing but every line of it's the, it ends the first act of the season it's episode 7 and it draws the first act of the season to a close through revelatory exposition song and I sat back and I thought that is simply amazing that you can do that I, I really had an appreciation for it so uh, musicals Generally, no, but I do know how to appreciate it when uh, it really does uh, elevate the art form in a certain way, and this one did. Does horror translate to any other medium for you besides film? In other words, radio, if you're here, just the audio, or oh, of course. perhaps theater? Sure. Uh, I, I was a fan of uh, literary horror before anything else. Okay. And, uh, you know, reared on Stephen King. That's sort of the, he was the first adult author that, uh, you know, that I got into as a, as a teenager. So, yeah, I go back to the written uh, genre offerings probably first. Of course, film is, you know, the bread and butter. It's a funny thing with horror. I mean, there's been plenty of television horror adaptations, meaning series, not movies. I mean, I believe uh, Wikipedia, if you were to plug in just a quick search for TV horror series or something to that effect, there's, I believe it's uh, 160 plus series. And you look over the listings and you think, well, for every Twilight Zone, which is an arguable entry as a genre-specific show, for every Twilight Zone or X-Files or even American Horror Story, if we're going to go modern, there is just so many failed attempts. You know, how many American goth 
topics to be suffered through, and how many other uh, poltergeists or, or omens series. It's just these shows, for whatever reason, horror doesn't seem to translate to uh, serialized or even episodic series uh, shows to me. Now, that said, I haven't seen the new Scream. I, uh, I do look forward to the Evil Dead series, but of course that's comedy-based. Uh, I don't know. I mean, your, your question in general is, uh, what do I like? All of it. Okay. Um, but the, it seems to be strongest in film and uh, literature. That's where horror, I think, works best. Literature specifically because, you know, um, it's the theater of the mind. And you can't really, if you were to take Clive Barker as an example of an author, you cannot present visually on a screen or through makeup or art department or costuming. You really can't recapture what your brain will create based on his descriptions, okay. because they are just so artistically insane that it makes your mind formulate all these phenomenal images, and it's, it, you're bound for disappointment in visual form. So literature has its own strengths. Film, of course, has its strengths too. Uh, there is the formula or template structure. Uh, but that said, there's a reason for the formula. It is um, that kind of structure of film works for horror, uh, what I like to see is creativity infused as well, and that's what's lacking. That's what's lacking big time. It's a story, isn't it? And the story's not happening anymore. Horror video games can work too, Brian, i got to say. Oh, really? Uh, do you play yeah. any? Or? Uh, well, certainly from time to time. I mean, just to refer to something recent, I finished a video game. It's a little older now. It's called Fear 2. Project Origin? Either way. Picked it up and played it through. It's a horror survival video game. Oh, cool. And you look at, you know, you go through the process of this thing. It's six, seven hours of your time. You play through it. You shoot guns. You fight evils. Um, but I tell you, when the lights are off and you're, in, you're engaged with what you're doing, when the screen shimmers and you have this kind of static effect that you get a little overused in, in modern uh, found footage, but you get this kind of static visual and uh, suddenly a, a pop-up of a figure... Uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty effective, you know. It, it does work. Uh, so, really, the only place that I I see uh, the only form that I struggle with when it comes to horror are the television format. Okay. For you know the general reasons I laid out. Although that's that said, there's successes as well. Um, I don't want to be dismissive. And uh, in visual means medium, I, I don't really. I've tried before to. Uh, get into graphic novels that are in the horror genre and for, for whatever reason it just doesn't it's not as engrossing to me when all those visuals are just splashed on the page i don't know i don't know it's, it's something i have to sort of formulate my words on a little bit more but uh in the comic format i haven't really come across the right material maybe that uh, that's working okay no that's fair enough no there is a lot of genres out there uh not genres there's a lot of um Mediums. Mediums to, to get product out. And uh, I'm just wondering if um, if one has enticed you more than the other. But I guess it all comes back to film. I think there's something about take, being taken on a ride in front of a film screen that's uh, kind of unique. And uh, I, I really enjoy the film. Uh, and I, I will go see more and more horror films. Uh, is there something you stay away from? Is there any creators you stay away from? Uh... Well, that that yes, probably. 
Yeah, uh, but I'd have to <laughs> sit down okay. and sort of figure that out, think on that. Um, the answer to that is, is yes, uh, but there's a blank to be filled in on that in terms of specific names. Uh, one question that's come up before many times in conversations, you know, with people about uh, a, a film in general is, do you avoid certain filmmakers or individuals in the industry based on some indiscretion? Because this is the Polanski question, all right? The, yeah. This is sort of the uh, the default term, and yeah, he's accused of this thing. Yep. And it happened um, four decades ago, and a lot of history has come and gone, yet he still is um, not, he's still living abroad outside of his native land uh, because he doesn't want to face the criminal charges that await. And I don't know how it goes. And the question is, well, how can you support Roman Polanski by going to his movies, right? Because he's such a monster. This is just the name that you plug into this scenario. It could be various people accused of the various indiscretions. I won't go see a Mel Gibson movie anymore. He's anti-Semitic. Or I won't go see uh, whoever it is, whatever whoever the is. issue is. Yeah. Um, this question comes up, and to be perfectly honest, it's not. I don't really take a strong stance when it comes to that. And my argument for that is, that okay, so this particular individual has been identified uh, as uh, being a bit of a scumbag. So we really shouldn't go see anything that they or she or he or they make. My argument against that is that might be true. That might be true. But in Hollywood, just about any production that results in a feature film in a theater screen is comprised of a team of hundreds of people. From producers down to uh, set designers, down to casting agents, down to the talent, what have you. Odds are good that 99.999% of the time, there's at least one douchebag in every production made in history. At least one, and I'll bet that you and I would be taken aback if we had the curtain pulled back and saw just how horrible some people might be. And I don't know who they are, uh, but I'll bet you that the uh, industry is rife with them and uh, they put on a smile and the cameras are there and they have a good public presentation but at the you know in the core of it they're probably really horrible people to work with so do I just not go to see any movies ever because I don't want to support bad people so I, I don't think I think it's a little too targeted to just pick a particular individual now that said if it's if it's horrendous I can recount all of this in an instant. If it's something like a particular uh, well-known figure or name is accused of something horrendous like domestic assault, well, all right. I don't want to see that stupid person's face on the screen. I won't go to it because of that. Not that I want to keep my two cents of my $10 movie ticket from going to that person. I don't care so much about that. It's just really whether or not I can handle that individual, uh, whether I'll go or, or avoid it. I have a problem too with with some some people of that ilk. Um, for example, Mel Gibson you'd mentioned. Uh, I find it hard to support people like that, and uh, there's some others too. Um, Billy Bob Thornton, I think. Well, he's a, I mean, he's brilliant guy, but what he what he did on CBC was absolutely despicable. It just made him really look like, well, probably who he is, which is a just conceited, arrogant sob. 
And uh, you know, I now how about this? How about this for a devil's advocate position, uh, Brenton? I'm not saying you're wrong at all. Um, and, and it's true. It's case by case always. Sure. Uh, it's just in a general sense. I, I don't think I'm going to pick up that banner and uh, and try to plant a flag to double up, double down on the uh, metaphors. I'm I'm not really going to take that stance just because of one particular uh, rumor or or something to that effect out of uh, a moral position. <laughs> it might be more of a personal uh, repugnance. You know, I I don't want to see that person. He's a bad person, and I don't want to watch him for two hours. That's really what it comes down to. Um, but here's one for you. If we're going to be pertinent sure. to current times, I mean, here's a, a really sticky one. Bill Cosby, right? And oh, Bill boy. Cosby is a beloved name for many of us who grew up with Bill Cosby yeah. and the Cosby Show, for me specifically. And you hear about all of the allegations, all of the various accusations, and they're really unprovable, ultimately, uh, but the voices, I mean, this chorus is getting larger and larger and larger. And you look at it and you think, well, consider that it's true. What does that mean? I, I can never watch anything he did now. Right? Like, I think that's a case where I look at him and I think, I'm going to go ahead and prejudge. I don't know. In the court of public opinion, you're guilty. Um, that, that might not mean you're guilty, and maybe it's not right or fair, but, jeez, uh, if any of this is true, it, it, I can't. There's a face I just can't watch on screen. Well, he's just come out recently, and a court document says that he did drug one of the girls, and he admitted to it. Yeah, he, got, he admitted to acquiring quaaludes yeah. for one particular instance, and it's only because there's, there must be some paper trail that's pinned him. Yeah. where his name is on a prescription or whatever, that, that's the only reason this has come up, is some scrap of paper exists. So he admits to that. To me, that is, well, we're going down a rabbit hole. But for that, basically, that reinforces where I stand on things. And, and yes, I admit I'm prejudging. But, um, you know, when it comes to that sort of thing, I don't think I'm going to watch a new stand-up special or I don't think I'm going to ever watch a rerun of that show. How could I? Yeah, it's going to be tough. It's going to be very, very tough. I don't think I could either, to be honest with you. I may have totally contradicted myself in the course no, of the I, conversation. No, I, I don't think so. I think I, I understand what you're saying because, you know, um, the stars are in the forefront. We look at them as role models, whether they like it or not. And uh, when you have a role model that's not quite living up to your standards, I think as a human being, uh, I think it transcends their performance and uh, I know there's many, many contrary arguments um, to, well, I'm trying to think of an example, a composer, a very famous composer. Um, oh, what the hell? What the, I forget his name. Uh, the, the fellow that was uh, very anti-Semitic and he was a big Hitler fan and everything else. Um, Forgive me for, for not remembering his name. I his music is great, but I, I can't listen to him because he was so anti-Semitic, and I can't think of his name right now, and I apologize for that. But that for does me, have an effect on me. So, sorry, Brent. For me, interestingly, yeah. I wouldn't make the connection because I'm not seeing their face in front of me. Okay. <laughs> is okay. that crazy? Maybe that's crazy, but that's the association that I have. Uh, 
yeah, the music I, I can sort of compartmentalize the music from the person who made it. Uh, maybe because I don't see them visually associated. When it's um when it's Mel Gibson's face on the television screen or the movie maybe. screen, I keep thinking of that video where, you know, he called he used the term, you know well, I won't say it, but he used some pretty bad terms. And and it's like hmm. I, I don't agree with I don't agree with his worldview. Uh, um, I'm not going to boycott his movie because of it, but do I really want to watch this guy? You know, for that amount of time, I—that's what turns me away. So when it comes to a medium like music, it's funny how I don't have that connection. That composer's no, name that's... was Richard Wagner, by the way. And um, you know, it's funny. You may be right. I think I just found myself contradicting myself and being a bit of a hypocrite because I went to see The Expendables three. And Mel Gibson was in it, and he was fantastic. He really elevated the but film. Brent, that's my that's my that's my argument. The cast of Expendables three, specifically because it's the yeah. largest, tell me that at least twenty five percent of those people are come are just you wouldn't want to be around them because they'd be horrendous, egomaniacal douchebags yeah. that yell at their PAs, that wear sunglasses indoors. I, they're just rotten people that I wouldn't want to hang around with, but it's not going to stop me from watching Expendables three. <laughs> Did you I like it? By the way, fun to this topic, but Did you like the Expendables? Sure, yeah, Expendables is fun. Yeah, good one-liners. Eh? That's what. That's all I go for now are the one-liners when I see old actors like that. I, ex- you know, because there's something about that that makes. I guess it crosses over the uh, the proscenium arch. It crosses over the. Um, the screen and it comes out at you and it says something personal to you when they say something that you can relate to. It's almost like a private joke to a certain degree. And I think that's what I liked about the expendables. And that's what I liked about Terminator was Arnold's one liners. And, um, that's it. That's it. That was well, enough for you. Well, you know, I mean the CGI stuff I've seen all before, <clears throat> um, crash, bang, smash. Uh, it's, we've seen it, you know, it, it's not going to hold me. How did they jump forward to 2017 and leave themselves 36 hours to solve the problem? Why would they? What? Why 36 hours? Why did they? They could have set the timer to any time, any time at all. Why didn't they just not bother time traveling and say, you know what? Actually, we could probably take out the groundwork of everything better right now, like 17 years ahead of time. Let's just stay here and do that. Let's just prevent this from ever happening instead of flash forwarding to the moment before. Skynet Awakens. And we, ah! Makes you crazy. Well, Star Trek did the same thing when they started the new movies. Yeah, for dramatic tension, I, I understand the motivation of it. It doesn't yeah. make it any less stupid. Okay. <laughs> Are you a fan of the Star Trek movies, the new ones? Sure. <laughs> Star Trek, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I like the, I like the uh, dynamic between the characters, which I think was lost since the first series came out. And I think they've recaptured that. I like that. I like that a lot. J.J. Abrams, I think he's done really, really well with that. What big blockbusters are, are coming out that you're going to go see? Are there well, the, the big three, the big three that lie ahead, of course, are Spectre. Um, very much looking forward to the next Bond. Uh, Hard Eight, you know, the Return of Tarantino, and um, of course Star Wars. But it begins. Everything begins and ends with Star Wars. December eighteenth, two thousand fifteen. What do you mean? What, what, what am I looking forward to? What? <laughs> I meant this summer. Everybody looking forward to. I meant this summer. Is there anything this summer you're looking forward to? No. 
That's too. Oh, there's music. Ted, thanks for joining me. It's been a blast. I know we went everywhere and everywhere. Uh, Kingstown, Ted, folks, Horror Etc. podcast. As always, uh, thank you, Kelly Lowe. Kelly will put the, and he's a fan of Horror Etc. That's where I met Kelly Lowe. Takes care of my website. Everything will be on www.nightfrightshow.com's website. Thanks, Ted. Have a good one, Brent. Thanks, buddy. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. See you all next time. Accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com.